Welcome to the podcast, Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path, and I'm your host, Mike Allen. When you run down the list of firsts in Connecticut history, there's one very interesting one that stands out. Connecticut elected the first female as governor of a state in her own right, meaning she didn't follow her husband into office. That woman was Ella Grasso, and her story follows a unique and unpredictable path. It's woven in talent, skill, hard work, and yes, a little bit of good luck along the way. Well, here to tell us the story of this remarkable woman is the man who served as her administrative assistant, John Permont of West Haven. Incidentally, John spends his time these days as the director of the West Haven Historical Society. Well, now the woman who smashed the glass ceiling for female governors in the U.S., Ella Grasso. Well, if you pay any attention to Connecticut politics or have done over the years, and if you go back a few years like I do, you're certainly going to hear a few familiar names in this episode. Now, in order to become Connecticut's first female governor in 1975, and in fact the first woman elected to a governorship on her own right anywhere in the U.S. back in 1975, Ella Grasso, of course, had to be smart, and she was, by all accounts, certainly that. She also had to be politically savvy, and in this she did have some help from some of the biggest names in the business in those days. Political powerhouses like John Bailey, Chester Bowles, and Chad McCullum. John Bailey was chairman of the Democratic Party in Connecticut for 30 years, from the mid-1940s until he died in 1975. Well, Bailey was always dubbed the kingmaker in Connecticut because, frankly, you didn't get to be governor without him giving his blessing. Chester Bowles started off as a Massachusetts native, but ended up in Essex, Connecticut on the Connecticut River. That's where his home was. He was the co-founder of the prestigious ad agency Benton and Bowles, and that put millions of dollars into his bank account. He also served as ambassador to India twice and was governor of Connecticut in the late 40s and early 50s, and he was Ella Grasso's boss at an early point in her career. And that third name, Chad McCullum, he was the Bethel-based political dynamo and was also Ella Grasso's chief of staff throughout her gubernatorial years. McCullum knew Connecticut politics like few others, and he practiced it like few others. Well, serving in the office immediately next to Ella Grasso's office in the state capitol building in Hartford was a West Haven man named John Permont. Now, John served as Ella Grasso's administrative assistant, arriving after the notorious blizzard of 78, during which Ella famously closed the state of Connecticut. Well, I had the privilege of interviewing John about how this woman, from a poor first-generation family in Windsor Locks, rose to attend elite women's schools and became a glass-ceiling-breaking figure in the history of U.S. politics. Anybody would have loved to have been the administrative assistant for Ella Grasso, the first female governor of the United States elected in her own right. And that person was you. How did you get that job? I had a job in politics and the political world and the governance of a city. And on occasion, I substituted for the mayor when he couldn't appear at a, a cutting a ribbon or a ceremonial type of occasion. And I met her that way, first of all, when she came to cut a ribbon on a road over the Amtrak tracks in New Haven. 
which ironically is called Alagrasa Boulevard today, she said, where's where's the mayor? What happened? And she, I said, well, he's out of town, and he asked me to come represent West Haven. So she said, well, come on. Uh, I'm glad you're here. The next occasion was at a luncheon at the Park Plaza Hotel in New Haven. Included were the mayors and first selectmen of every town. And again, the mayor was uh, in Washington, I think, for that occasion, so he asked me to substitute for him. I ran into her, of course, and she said, I want you to sit next to me on the dais. I said, well, okay, that would be nice. Then each of the mayors was introduced, and they got up and said a few words. I did it, and I sat down, and she said, did you write that? I said, yes, I did, Governor. And she said, that was very good. And one day I got a call from Chad McCollum. He said, the governor would like you to come up to her office tomorrow to talk about a job change. So I went up. I was escorted into her office, and she said, I want you to take this position and observe the pageantry of the next four years. I was bowled over by those words. I thought they were really quite perceptive. I hesitated for a moment, and I said, well, I have to give notice to the mayor, and I'm would I have time to do that? She said, yes, but I want you to start in two weeks. I said, oh, okay. So that's how it came about. Well, life sometimes gives us some opportunities, but we got to be prepared to take them, so congratulations on that. Nobody knows who Ella Giovanna Oliva Tambusi is, but they know who Ella Grasso is, and obviously that's one and the same person. You knew her well and talked about her family life uh, growing up in Windsor Locks. What was that like? Well, she was an only child. Her parents were immigrants to this country. They came over in the early 1900s. They had limited education in Italy, and her father was, uh, well, he eventually ran a bakery, her mother was a homemaker. They spoke Italian and, of course, broken English. She had friends, but not close buddies or close friends, except one, Robert Carroll, whom she remained friends with for a lifetime. Now, he became a reverend, Reverend Bob Carroll, in the Catholic Church, and he also became her confessor. And so they had this long-term relationship. But To say that she had a host of friends, no, I can't say that I met a host of friends. But Bob Carroll, I had met and I knew. When she went to school, of course, she became an honor student. So in many respects, she was a loner. She had friends, but they were very selected and very few. Now, when she got toward high school, her mother, as I understand it, as I think I read in your article was intent on getting her, first of all, some sort of preparatory education and then into uh, Mount Holyoke, just up the Connecticut River from the Windsor Locks area. Could you tell us that part of the story? Her mother had a a very good friend named Josephine Prelly. And Mrs. Prelly had a daughter who went to uh, Chafee and also to Mount Holyoke. And her daughter was very influential in speaking about the education that she received at Chafee, which is a girls' private school in in Windsor, and also the opportunities for higher education in Mount Holyoke. So I think that had something to do with her mother influencing her to go to those two schools, Chafee and Mount Holyoke, which, by the way, she went to on scholarship, both at Chafee and at Mount Holyoke. Let me ask you, when she got to Holyoke, she had a teacher 
who was very sort of steadfast in the notion of public service. And you write that that had a huge, profound impact on Ella Grasso and her development into wanting to serve in politics and government. Could you tell us that? Yes, she had a very close friendship for a lifetime with a professor, Amy Hughes. Amy Hughes is the role model, I would say, for Ella's decision to go into public service. She had a unique way of teaching. She uh, took students to factories in the Holyoke area and it enabled them to have a window on a world that probably none of them ever saw in their life. Working people at machines at, shall we say, dirty factories. Ella was impressed by that. Today, we would call it, I guess, part of an education that's sort of typical, but it was unusual in those days for girls to do that. And she saw women at these factories laboring, hard jobs, and non-union. I mean, they eventually became unionized, but in those days, unions were far and free between in the factories in Holyoke. So that woman had an immense effect on Ella. She also selected Ella to be her graduate assistant. So Ella not only got her bachelor's degree, but she got a master's degree at Mount Holyoke under Amy Hughes. And John, once she graduated from Holyoke, what was the next step in her life? And she got married that year, and she took a job with the Department of Labor. And the head of the, the division within the Labor Department was Chester Bowles. That's a nice connection. I mean, Chester Bowles eventually, as you know, became governor of Connecticut. But she was very impressed with Chester Bowles, and she worked, as she said, for 1200 a year. That was her starting salary. A great salary in those days, I suppose. But uh, it was in the war, and she went to work in those years. And then about 1946, I believe, she left and then became a homemaker and a mother. When she gets into politics eventually and decides she's going to run first, I think, as state representative and then as governor, the dichotomy is kind of interesting because on the one hand, you describe somebody who doesn't necessarily have an overflow of friends, let's characterize it that way. And generally speaking, you tend to think of successful politicians as people who glad hand crowds and everybody sort of like them or you know wants to be like them. And it almost seems like it was an odd profession to pick for Ella Grasso to be around so many people when maybe that wasn't something she had practiced early in life. What, what was your sense about that? What made her so electable? Well, I think she had a, an intellect that was most impressive if you knew her at all. I should say she's one of the brightest women I've ever met. But she had a, a way about her of making friends easily as she grew older and into it and became a public figure. I think it was hard at the start for her, but gradually she overcame that. She became a very easygoing politician. She had it made easily, but it came to her not early in life. Now, you worked for the mayor of West Haven. I worked for the mayor of Danbury for a while. We've both been able to see from the inside that the political game can at times be kind of nasty and not a lot of fun. Ella being the first woman to take on the role of governor of Connecticut had to have a pretty thick skin, not just to be governor anyway, but to be the first female. Could you talk about that side of her? 
Well, there's a great quote from Eleanor Roosevelt who said, any woman who goes into politics must develop a skin like a rhinoceros, a tough skin. And I think Ella eventually did acquire that. Didn't come easy, but she acquired it. And I think one of the things that prompts that is her relationship and her availability to be active with John Bailey, who was the state chairman, of course, of the Democratic Party. She learned a lot from Bailey. Secondly, she ran in 1950 for a state rep job in Windsor Locks. And the Grassos, her mother and father, had been Republicans. She enrolled as a Democrat. She was impressed by Chester Bowles. And that interested her, and she followed his campaign. And, of course, in 1950, then she became a candidate for a state rep. It was a primary that first year. By the way, she and Tom built a house across the street from her mother and father. I like to say they had built-in babysitters, which freed her up to become more politically active. And she became a legislator from Winston Locks. As a matter of fact, I remember one thing she did when she got into office she insisted that she was opposed to a proposal put forth by the agricultural industry, the farmers who controlled the legislature in those days. Their proposal was to not require them to put a date that the milk was pasteurized, the last sale date on a quart of milk that you go in the store and you look and you see what the date is. They want to get rid of that. And she fought that tooth and nail, and she got petitions. She uh, had petitions from all around the state to backing her proposal to oppose that. And that made a name for her. It was a popular consumer-oriented issue, and she got invited to all kinds of places as a result. She was on the side of the consumer, and it helped her. Also, she latched on to Bailey. When I say latched on to her, he recognized in Ella Grasso a woman who was, first of all, Italian. And Italians were a very numerous population in Connecticut. Today, they are the largest population of any ethnic group. But they were certainly growing in importance then. Bailey hired her. He said, don't run for third term as state rep. He said, I'm going to see to it that you're appointed to the National Committee. And you can work in my office editing and publishing the newsletter for the Democratic Party in the state. And so she agreed to step down or step away from elective office for a time and became uh, associate of Bailey, became a member of the National Committee, which, by the way, she said was a big, a big yawn. <laughs> she didn't like that at all. Well, we can't always have what we want. The interesting part about life sometimes is how fate just delivers you opportunities, which if you run with the ball well, you're successful. And if you fumble it, well, we all know what the outcome is there. And there was in 1978 a huge blizzard in the state of Connecticut. And I was a reporter at the time. And I remember covering that storm. And I remember, and I will always remember, Ella Grasso shut the state of Connecticut. And we in the press corps were just amazed that somebody had actually closed the state. You know, how could you do this? And yet it turned out to be not only a very smart decision, but also one that in a lot of people's minds extinguished any thought about, well, she's a woman. Is she up to such a task as handling a crisis like this? She 
was wonderful. And uh, I know you weren't in the administration when that happened, but you were there shortly thereafter. How did people inside her administration view that? Let's start with myself. I thought that would make her life much easier. She had a tough first term. I can remember her speech to the legislature the very first day she became governor. And she said, the cupboard is bare. There's no money. We were at $70 or $80 million in debt. From that point until about 1978, it was a struggle for Ella. Could a woman find a way to get Connecticut out of this morass of debt? You know, she raised taxes. She raised the state sales tax to seven and a half. And I remember, I think one of the things that she put was three cents on every 50 cent newspaper in Connecticut. I remember picking up the newspaper every day and saying, hey, I have to pay 53 cents for the paper. <laughs> that was just me. But anyway, she raised taxes. And when that storm hit, she did what came naturally to her. Connecticut governors didn't close the highways. Ella was the first one that did that. But since that time, governors after her have emulated her decision and closed the state down. 27 people in Massachusetts died on the highways during that storm. Connecticut suffered three fatalities. It was the key thing to do because it gave the state highway department clear sailing to open up the highways. She received a lot of as I call fan mail, as a result of her actions from mayors and selectmen and from ordinary citizens. It was a key decision that she made that from that point on, those who were giving her this hard time over the years, because she was a woman, saw in her the gumption and the, the guts it took to make those decisions that she made. And it enabled her to be reelected. You know, Chad McCollum was the one who explained to me that Ella's first term was so difficult that she often shared with him the view that she wasn't going to run. She thought she would not win, that there was such public outcry against her, and she seriously considered not running. But I think the storm and her heroics during it enabled her to give it another thought, and we benefited from that decision to uh, go for a second term. What a great story, John. The occasion comes up when you're in a role like you were in or like I was in in Danbury, where you get some one-on-one time with the chief elected official. On occasion, it'll get what I would say personal in terms of they kind of let their hair down and maybe you hear them share some insights that they wouldn't share publicly for all sorts of reasons. What was it like when you got into that situation with Ella Grasso? What was on her mind? Was it her family? Did she ever talk about the fact that she realized she was the first woman in this job? Did she share those kinds of thoughts? What was it like? I once said to her, Governor, what would you plan to do after your second term is over if you decide not to run for a third term? And she said, I think I might do some teaching at Mount Holyoke, maybe a couple days a week because it's close to Winslock. She could get up there very quickly. That and writing a history of women, the women that I've known, particularly in Connecticut. John, uh, obviously it got to a point where her health caught up to her in a very negative way, and she ended up having to resign. Uh, tell us that part of the story. Well, it was very, uh, very heart-wrenching for us as staff. We heard the news very quietly, and we all knew what the next weeks and days would bring. 
and they would be difficult to, to say the least for her. But I remember one thing. When she was leaving on Wednesday before Thanksgiving, she was going online for the weekend. I helped her on with her coat. She didn't have the ability to put her two arms in the coat arms. And that was the last time I saw her. She never came back to the office. She went into hospital that weekend, and it gradually became obvious that she was never coming back to the Capitol. She resigned, by the way, uh, December 31st of that year, of 1980, and she died five weeks later on February 5th. She did what she thought was right, and she wouldn't leave the state for any treatments. Some people said that she'd go to New York or she should go to Boston for the treatment. She rejected that. She wouldn't leave Connecticut. As Jimmy Grasso said to me very often, he said, my mother thought of the state of Connecticut. She was the mother of the state of Connecticut. She thought she had that responsibility right to the very end. John, you're in a very unique position to maybe answer this final question of what should we remember most about Ella Grasso? What is, you know, when we think of Ella Grasso, what should we be thinking about? Hard work, discipline, ambition. And she was a person who cared very much about other human beings. People don't realize this, that she often read an article in the paper and she would tell me when she came in that day, did you see that article in the current that day about some boy or some girl who was having problems? Said, send him a check, send her this note, that kind of thing. It was uh, a woman who had ambition, achieved much in her life, but she never lost her love and her affection for Connecticut and its people. That's going to wrap up this episode of Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. Ella Grasso was the 83rd governor of the state of Connecticut. She passed away after a brave battle with ovarian cancer at the age of 62. You know, there's only been one other female governor of Connecticut. That was the 87th, Jody Rell of Brookfield, a marvelous leader and politician in her own right. I want to thank my guest for this episode, John Permott. He's director of the West Haven Historical Society and the former administrative assistant to Ella Grasso. Well, next week on Amazing Tales CT, we've all heard of the cavalry, those horseback riding soldiers who come galloping into the rescue at the last minute. Well, the cavalry is from the U.S. Army, and the very first cavalry charge ever on U.S. soil was done by a Connecticut group, the Second Light Dragoons. And wait until you hear about the Dragoons and all the different things they do and did, including starting the very first spy ring, the one for George Washington. Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path is a production of True North Associates, LLC. This is Mike Allen. Be safe and stay healthy. (laughs) 